gentlemen, this is an important message from the New York City Police Department. If you see a suspicious package or activity on the platform or train, do not keep it to yourself. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. My name is Lady, and I'm an African-American Muslim nurse for over 22 years. I currently work at a prominent New York City hospital and have experienced working during the COVID crisis. The coronavirus seemed to come like a storm. Symptoms first seemed very respiratory, then it seemed to change to more gastrointestinal with other vague symptoms. We did our best for all those under our care. It is hard for me to think about those white trucks which stood outside hospitals to house bodies which could not be held in the morgues. Statistics was checked daily, and the reports of the discrepancies and negative outcomes for African-American patients were staggering. And no real reason why. Comorbidities maybe, underlying chronic health issues maybe. People were stressed and depressed and feeling hopeless, defeated. So when our video recordings uh, were noticed of three recent events, it clearly depicted racism in its ugliest form. People said enough. The problem that we all knew existed in this country were clearly depicted for all to see and acknowledge. A jogger is videotaped being killed in, for, in front of our eyes. An officer who was sworn to take an oath to uphold the law used his privilege and force to literally withhold the breath for a human being. Enough is enough. Allah help us all. I am raising a black man, and what saddens me isn't the fact that people walk around and flash their privilege around like it's a fancy piece of jewelry. I know the history of this country. My ancestors were forced into this country, then tortured, beat, raped, burned, beheaded, robbed, murdered by the ancestors of those very people who walk around today with that privileged jewelry. But when people who are supposed to protect and do harm and end the lives of innocent people, we need to revamp this system that puts these very people in place. My heart is so heavy and I wanna scream, but then do everything in my power to advocate for those men and for all people who are undervalued and not deemed worthy of life. I wanna be a part of the solution which holds people accountable for their actions. I don't have time to be stressed and my daily prayers keep me focused on reasons I am allowed to even be. And that is to serve and worship my Lord, to do good and help those in need keep a positive attitude. I make extra prayer daily, many extra prayers. It's a new day. Things are different. This is our new norm. Hey everyone, I'm Amadal Yakbar and this is M-Train, a miniseries from See Something, Say Something and Brick TV. What you've just heard is a voice note we were sent by Lady, a Muslim nurse on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. We'll be speaking more with her later. 
This is actually the very last episode of the M-Train miniseries, and we're going to be speaking with black Muslims about two related issues. The abolitionist protests arising around the murder of George Floyd and the structural health disparities of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be speaking with a professor, a protester, and a nurse about the disparities of police violence and health outcomes that black Americans bear the brunt of. Okay, so a lot is happening in America in spring and summer of 2020. I'm going to try to catch us up. The country has shifted from a full lockdown in early spring to a partial reopening in early summer. The COVID-19 virus has choked American society in every conceivable way, and Black American folks have disproportionately dealt with the effects of it. And then the murder of George Floyd by police, the militia-like lynching of Ahmaud Arbery, the killing of Breonna Taylor in her bed, has caused a huge cultural shift in the conversation around Black Lives Matter. Protests have erupted nationwide, worldwide even, with defunding the police at its forefront. Abolitionists have been working on the cultural conversation for years, and now the conversation is changing to center them. The 4th of July weekend is coming up, and while many people are celebrating the independence and birthday of America, it's important to remember that this country was built on racism, genocide, and slavery. Black Muslims in particular have been at the forefront of the abolitionist and anti-police brutality conversation for decades, including Professor Donna Austin. I first interviewed Professor Austin way back in 2016 when Donald Trump was first elected. She's an anthropologist at Rutgers University focused on race, gender, and Islam. She's also a member of the Black Muslim COVID Coalition. Her dissertation is an ethnographic study of Islam, race, spirituality, and protest through an examination of Black Muslim activists in the Northeastern U.S. within the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. We called her up in Jersey to ask about this current moment and how Black Muslims are an important part of the conversation. So, Professor Austin, uh, it has been two weeks since the protests for George Floyd erupted on Tuesday, May 26th. And, you know, a lot has changed since 2014 in Ferguson and those initial uprisings against police violence. Can you walk me through what has changed in those five, six years? What is different about the movement now and why is it gaining so much traction in a way it hasn't before? When we think about social change and the moments of breakthrough in relation to social change, a lot of times they seem very sudden, um, but typically they are the result of years worth of organizing and refining and pushing um, for a particular type of change. And I think one of the things that we're seeing at this moment is that all of the hard work that activists and writers and thinkers have been putting into articulating what abolition is, what it's supposed to be, why it's urgent, why we need it, um, and why it's the thing that we need to be pushing for instead of say reform, you know, police reform, people have been writing about abolition um, and pushing for abolition and organizing around abolition and defunding and those sorts of related initiatives for at least 30 years. Um, and so what you're seeing now is really, it's, it's, a, it's a culmination of that work, but it's also sort of a result, I think, of a, a, a veritable storm of other social circumstances um, that make this a particularly volatile moment when these things sort of hit a fever pitch or a, like a crisis point, you know, five years ago. Um, I think 
there was a lot less restlessness on the part of the country as a whole with regard to the, the, the presidential administration that we had, um, how things were being handled on a day-to-day basis, um, just in terms of people's quality of life and access to, you know, to services even. Um, I mean, we're experiencing this moment, not only, it's not only a culmination of this sort of unending, um, egregious, extremely violent and graphic uh, killing of Black people, Um, But you're also sort of experiencing that um, in the middle of a global pandemic where people have been in varying varying states of quarantine for, you know, two or three months. Um, We've seen the complete failures of, you know, of, of the federal government, at least, and in many cases compounded by how it's being handled at the state and, 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 and local level. Um, people are out of work in record numbers. People are getting sick. People are dying. I mean, we're well over 100,000 deaths in terms of the pandemic. So there's a lot of really strong emotion happening right now. And I think in some ways, um, to be like completely cliche about it, right, I think in a lot of ways, people are really fed up in a way um, that they weren't five years ago. Even though, of course, for many people who were um, feeling the urgency of that particular moment um, may have been experiencing emotions um, in some way similar to that. I think a lot of people who had the luxury of remaining distant from these types of issues five years ago are feeling less, you know, sheltered from what's going on. Um, and that's that's showing in the reaction. And I think people are sort of thinking about the fact that what we have as a system that is uh, purported to take care of people and to ensure that people have their basic needs met, et cetera, et cetera, um, is really not working in a, in a way that we weren't feeling many of us five years ago. For me, particularly as somebody who has spent a fair amount of time at protests, both as, you know, sort of somebody who is personally cares about these issues, but also as somebody who researches, you know, these killings and protest activity uh, professionally, it's pretty intense to, to watch things that, that I've experienced to some degree or another, you know, happening again. You know, and that, you know, that being not just the the killings, but also sort of the response to the killings. I mean, I've been in situations where there was a, you know, a very strong militarized police response to protesters. I mean, I was on the ground in Baltimore in 2015, for example. Um, And in other places, even other cities and locations that we don't sort of remember as particularly intense. I mean, police response to protesters, even just, you know, sort of ordinary routine protest is routinely um, outsized, violent and brutal. This call is now being recorded. I had like heard about the protest because I have a couple of friends that live down um, by the Barclay Center and they said that it was happening outside. Um, when I got there, it was probably, it was pretty late, um, probably around like 9.30. They were um, stationed kind of in multiple tiers. Um, and then someone like out of nowhere just started grabbing and arresting anyone who was like in the front. That's Tishel, a Brooklyn resident and protester. 
Since the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers in May, major protests have been held regularly in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and up and down the East Coast. In some major moments here in New York, police trapped protesters on the Manhattan Bridge, leading to a kind of a tense showdown situation. There was a major rally specifically for black trans folks, and hundreds of protesters have been arrested. Tishal, who you just heard, was one of those protesters. Brooklyn USA, our sister podcast at Brick, interviewed her about her experience being arrested. Tune in to Brooklyn USA episode 31 for the full interview. There was a number of people who I heard were literally either crossing the street, getting groceries, wanted to get Chick-fil-A, a man grabbed me from behind um, in a crowd of people. Uh, he immediately threw me to the ground and eight men descended upon me um, on each part of my body. I am completely bruised and bloodied from it. I still don't have feeling in my hands entirely. Um, my friend got arrested with me and, and then we got taken first to a Brooklyn precinct. Um, and there was, again, a lot of confusion as to why we were there or whether we were supposed to be there and then eventually wound up at one police plaza where they were taking everyone across the bridge into Manhattan. My arresting officer um, started being very, very uncomfortably kind the second that we were in the wagon he like (laughs) tucked my hair behind my ears and put my mask wanted to put my mask on um like just things that like were a level of intimacy that was really bizarre um for someone who had just attacked you and i'm clearly bleeding at this point i got knocked to the ground with such force that my contacts got knocked out of my eyes um like like, I, i clearly have been harmed um I was like, I'm not going to tell you if I'm hurt. You're the person that hurt me. That's not how this works. Like, I'm not going to, like, appeal to your humanity. <laughs> the protests in New York have continued for nearly a month, with demonstrators demanding cuts to the NYPD budget. Hundreds of protesters like Tishal have been arrested in the past month as the police have engaged in violent, military-style suppression. I was in jail for 10 hours. My friend who got arrested with me was there for maybe three. Only white people were released in a time that would have been reasonable. There is no heating there, it's pretty freaking cold. So for about like 10 hours, I was just like shivering, utterly freezing cold um, to the point where I like made myself a toilet paper blanket and like couldn't fall asleep. It's very tough, it's very difficult to to watch this happening at an even more intense level now, you know, and also sort of knowing because again, because I've spent some time studying these matters, you know, sort of how police have been militarized um, over the last several decades, right? And knowing what what the potential for destruction and loss of life are, and particularly when there's no accountability and weaponry that seems to be almost limitless in supply, it, it's 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 quite frightening to watch. You know, it's it's unset it's unsettling to say the very least. So we're seeing a national sort of response to the police and the militarization of the police. It has truly sort of infused the national conversation, so much so that uh, there was a um, 
piece in the New York Times by Mariam Kaba that said, yes, we really mean abolish the police. Um, this demand of abolishing the police is now a much more um, national conversation than it has been in the past. So can you, in your understanding, I know there are many you know, sort of disagreements about what abolish and defund means, but for you, what do those demands mean? This is and always has been a national problem. Um, once people begin to sort of say, well, hey, the way we've always done things maybe isn't actually going to get us the results that we, that we thought it would. And I think that's one of the things that's happened with the question of abolition um, and defunding and, and those sorts of things, right? Like, why do we have to have police departments that function in this way? Because a lot of what has enabled this, of course, is this lack of really critical engagement with the fact that we have these heavily armed police departments that are supposed to be the guardians of public safety, um, and, you know, what happens if they're not? And I, I just think you have larger numbers of people opening their eyes for whatever reason or having their eyes opened is probably more appropriate um, to say, well, wait a minute, um, maybe these aren't, you know, sort of these sacred cows, right, that we can't touch. Because, I mean, a lot of the previous conversation has just been like, you know, these, these people are... Um, you know, by a lot of Americans are sort of viewed as, as, you know, unquestionable heroes. And so anything and everything that they do is pretty much beyond reproach or beyond question. And it's, it's so fascinating, because for instance, I think a lot of folks have gotten on board with, including I'm going to like, talk about the Muslim community here, with Black Lives Matter. Like if you really talk to most of my friends and family, like a significant portion of them are on board with Black Lives Matter, which is not a hard subject uh, for it should not be a hard statement to agree with, but it did, you know, for whatever reason within our communities because of, you know, anti-blackness and m many other reasons, it was, it took some time for people to really strongly say it the way they say it now. However, abolition is the next step, right? Like a lot of folks, for instance, I'm having conversations in my, in my group chats about like this specific conver uh, point that you've made that like, for instance, we've defunded education, we've defunded healthcare in so many ways, um, and yet the police have these massive budgets. They are um, held accountable for murders in a single percentage digit, you know. Uh, and so it's been interesting seeing these conversations kind of happen within the Muslim community, both between black Muslims and non-black Muslims. How are you sort of seeing these conversations play out? How are people using both Islamic terminology, but also like, you know, sort of the social contract that Muslims have with each other? How are people articulating this abolition movement and engaging with it? Um, and what are some of the you know ways in which you are having conversations with your community about it? There are many Muslims, especially black Muslims, who are actually um, at the forefront of, you know, articulating positions around abolition and, and these sorts of things. I mean, police brutality and its related web of concerns, right? And I mean, this is, this also sort of includes uh, prison abolition and mass, you know, mass incarceration concerns and all of these other sorts of related, immediately related um, uh, issues um, are issues that Muslims have been, you know, particularly Black Muslims have been organizing around um, using the framework of Islam since 
the forties, right? Like, I mean, it's been a really long time, you know, um, for example, Muhammad Ali's very famous refusal to be drafted into the Vietnam War, because of course, we're talking about like policing domestically, but it is sort of connected. It's very much connected, I mean, in so many ways, um, to militarization and occupation and imperial violence across the globe. And so these issues have been at the center of Black Muslim religious organizing and what I call actually in my dissertation, spiritual protest, you know, since the last century, right? Um, Now, of course, when it comes to um, other demographics within the U.S. Muslim community, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot because, you know, there's a lot of anti-Black racism within Muslim communities. And so even sort of the shared faith umbrella is not always enough to guarantee that, um, that other Muslims will show up for these issues. And, and, you know, traditionally, at least in my experience, um, both, you know, just sort of as a community member, but also as a researcher looking at these issues very closely, with some exceptions, notable exceptions, I guess, um, but the response is generally pretty apathetic, right? Um, Muslims as a whole in the U.S. have not organized around Black Lives Matter or police brutality or anti-Black violence or structural racism against African Americans and and other Black people in any way um, comparable to, for example, how Muslims have sort of made Palestine or unrest in Kashmir and other places sort of Muslim issues, quote unquote, right? Right. Or even currently, like the issues with the Uyghur diaspora, which, you know, all of these things are clearly awful, but, you know, it's interesting to see in which the ways those are framed as Muslim issues versus, you know, violence against Black Americans. Right. And one of the ways that this shows up um, very easily, I think, at least, you know, and this is something that I've seen very often, you know, when we're talking about how this is sort of framed as a religious issue is that, I mean, I don't know how many times, I think a lot of us can say we've had similar experiences. How many times have you been in a masjid, um, say in Ramadan or at any point or after Juma, um, and you've heard the imam lead everyone in prayer for, for Palestine, <laughs> right? And how many times have you had um, an imam lead people in prayer for Minneapolis, or Baltimore, or Baton Rouge, or, you know, take your pick. Amongst all the protests and pain, Black folks are facing a pandemic within a pandemic, having been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 in the city. Nationally, Black folks died of COVID-19 at nearly triple the rate of white people. Police brutality is one form of structural racism. The disparate health outcomes of COVID-19 are another. Black people are, you know, twice as likely to die from COVID, according to the most recent statistics that I've seen. And so it's, you know, it's, and it hit us. I mean, we've lost some community elders, Black Muslim community elders in Newark, which is a largely Black Muslim city and where I did a lot of my dissertation research. Um, We lost, you know... We lost, you know, we lost religious leaders in New York City. Um, so, yeah, so this com- this crisis has definitely hit our communities um, and, and not in an abstract way. And one of the things that I tend to emphasize to my students is that um, these issues of race 
and inequality, you know, often get framed in public discourse as being about how some individual white person for example, might feel about, you know, maybe their black neighbor, right? Do they like black people or not? And I think often those are really just the wrong questions to ask because what what actually is the most significant thing about racism is the structural inequality and that these particular um, these particular social phenomenon have real material consequences for people's lives. And what I said to them was that what we are going to see very likely, and this was before the crisis really started to unfold, is that all of the issues that we've been discussing, right, unequal access to health care, um, overrepresentation of particular racial groups in certain occupations, low income frontline, you know, what has what we've now begun to term essential workers, people who are from racial minorities tend to be more heavily represented there, more heavily represented in prisons. So all these things, you know, mass incarceration, all of these issues that in the best of times really have profoundly devastating impacts on black uh, communities and other communities of color are really going to become exacerbated in this crisis. And this is this is this was my prediction. COVID-19 is, of course, still a pandemic, but Lady, the African-American nurse who we heard at the top of the episode, made some time to update us on the situation those first few months in the hospital. So, you know, initially I kind of called you up because I was interested in talking about the racial disparities that have been reported around coronavirus uh, outcomes, specifically that Black folks have, you know, higher rates of infection and mortality, which kind of points to a structural issue in our healthcare system. But of course, now there's like a broader conversation here about all the ways in which the structures of our society, the police force, healthcare system, fail Black folks. How are you seeing some of those disparate outcomes um, in your patients? Um, are you seeing that uh, in your experience of working through the pandemic? I mean, personally, I have just been seeing it as far as resources that's available. Um, I keep in touch with like a lot of my friends who work around the city. I'm a part of a lot of professional organizations, and we've been having these conversations just about, you know, the, the racial disparities that already existed that are very well known and very well documented. And then just talking about how COVID is just one another disease process that just came about that clearly illustrates the, the disparities in care and the disparities in, you know, morbidity and mortality of diseases. It's not this is not new to the black community. Um you know, this issue with prevalence of diseases. And, you know, it is a systemic issue, just like Racism is a systemic issue, but there are, you know, still environmental exposures and toxic air and, you know, limited hospital resources in many communities and, you know, educational gaps and literacy challenges and um, health literacy specifically and, you know, differences in treatment of patients in and, in, in, you know, in black populations. And until we change all of that, this issue of, you know, disparities with, you know, health is not going to change. I think COVID and the statistics 
just showed it, like I said, it just illustrated again, yet another disorder, another disease process that if you don't fix those disparities, you're going to have higher morbidity and higher mortality rates. As far as the um, African-American community, again, just friends, family, just seeing the increased numbers of death. You know, the visualization I have about some the amount of death that happened during this crisis is these uh, white trucks that were outside of these hospitals that were housing bodies. That was a real thing. Um, the Muslim community suffered loss. We lost a lot of um, people during the crisis from COVID. I have friends who've lost mothers, brothers, um, all in the same week. Um, and the the question is, well, how are we dealing with that? I think for some, we're numb. Um, for some, we're angry. Um, for some, we're relying on our faith. I think you ask, uh, you know, different people, they'll tell you different ways in which they're dealing with it. So before we go, I wanted to end on a note of some optimism. One thing these twin movements of pandemics and protests have opened up is the possibility of building mutual aid, of building up our communities. We called up Donna a few weeks earlier, and as a member of the Black Muslim COVID Coalition, she had a lot to say. If you think about um, something like healthcare, right, and access to healthcare, right, if your neighbor can't get tested for this, you know, this highly contagious disease or whatever, right? Then that puts you at risk, whether you have, whether you can see a doctor or not, right? And so something like this um, really sort of highlights the ways that solidarity as a model of governance um, is so much better I think um, this particular crisis has also sort of opened up possibilities for new types of configuration, uh, lots of mutual aid type of, you know, uh, whether they're ad hoc or sort of extensions of, of more established organizations work, you know, making sure that people have basic necessities like food and access to testing and, and that sort of thing have definitely cropped up um, in Black Muslim communities. Um, one of the most interesting situations that I, uh, organizations that I've seen um, is something called the Black Muslim COVID Coalition, which I am a, a member of, um, organized primarily by two, again, organizations that have already been in business for a number of years, the Muslim Wellness Foundation and uh, the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative sort of came together and assembled a broad, I think we're now up to maybe 50 or so uh, members of people, people from various backgrounds. So we have clergy people sort of working together to deal, you know, to try and mobilize particular responses for Black Muslim communities based on what the varying needs, you know, what the specific needs of that demographic are. We needed all of the expertise that our community has because this was not simply just a medical problem, for example, right? Um, and with with even just being a medical problem, right? Medical problems are never just about direct health care, right? They're also about economics. They're also about sociology. They're also about uh, emotional wellness. And so much goes into 
trying to solve what is a straightforward medical problem, right? Um, so we knew that we needed basically all hands on deck. So we tried to, you know, sort of establish a broad coalition of folks. The way this pandemic is unfolding in the United States, also across the globe, is that not every place is hit in the same way to the same degree at the same time, right? So, you know, basically sort of having eyes and ears in various places also helps us to sort of respond in a timely fashion to the, you know, ever evolving and ever unfolding situation that we're dealing with. to the work of the Black Muslim COVID Coalition, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, and bail funds in the episode description. Things are changing rapidly as the national conversation morphs with more news of police violence or the devastating effects of the pandemic. M-Train 2 was shaped by all these things. I want to thank you all for listening in, for being patient with us as we adapted to these circumstances. I also want to thank the team at Brick who produced the show, Shireen, Mira, and Sasha. I want to thank all the guests who came on and shared their stories about Muslim New York and what makes it tick. See Something, Say Something will continue after our break. We may even have a little bonus M-Train episode coming out at the end of the month, so stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening to M-Train. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted and produced by me, Amadal Yakbar, and Shireen Barghi. It is edited by Mira El-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham and Sasha Mathias. Follow me on Twitter at RadBrownDads, follow See Something Say Something on Twitter and Facebook at See Something, and follow Brick Radio on Twitter at Brick TV. This episode featured music composed by Mira Al-Rahim and from Freesound. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges program. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. See Something Say Something is on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash Thanks to our patrons Ted Delphos, Stacey Marie Ishmael, Melis T, Mo D, Remy Carroll, Mustafa Nusrati for supporting the show. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thank you so much for listening to M-Train. <laughs>